church discipline is kind of like a white rhinoceros. It, you know that they exist, but you've never seen one. <clears throat> you know, church discipline used to be seen as absolutely essential to the health and the vitality of the church. In fact, <clears throat> from the reformers on, church discipline was seen as one of the three marks of the true church. In other words, what are the marks of a true biblical church? Well, they were always modeled by the preaching of the gospel. It was always the administration of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and communion, or the Lord's Supper and baptism, and then the exercising of church discipline. In fact, all the way until the early 19th century, uh, particularly in the South here, <clears throat> churches always practice it. In fact, the Baptists in pre-Civil War days had 2% excommunications every year of their church membership, dealing with people who are not walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, that they would confront the people and remove them from the membership of the church. Now, have you seen church discipline? Speaking one time with my father-in-law about it, he was pressing 80 at the time and asked him if he had, uh, speaking about the nature of church discipline, and he had said, I've never seen it occur. 80 years, lifetime church attender never saw church discipline at all. What do you think of when you think of church discipline? Does it, does it get you nervous? I mean, is it, is it something that you think of cruel and perhaps harsh, maybe even judgmental? You know, you see it as possibly destructive? Or, or do you see church discipline as maybe helpful and constructive and beneficial? It brings clarity. It encourages perseverance and holiness. How do you see it? I mean, is discipline something that's needed in the church. You know, we've been looking at the 18th chapter here of Matthew, and it's been all about the way we relate to one another. How do we as a church function together? Remember how we started this with the humility of the saints, that we're called to walk in humility before one another. And we do this by welcoming one another, and we do this by not putting stumbling blocks before one another, and we do it by by pursuing those who stray. Remember how last week we were told, don't despise the little ones? Well, he's going to tell us how not to despise them, but to pursue them. And he's going to show us kind of how to restore the fallen in our passage. He's going to show us really how to take the stray and lead them back to the flock. So if you will turn with me to Matthew 18. And uh, Matthew 18, we'll read the first Matthew 18, 15 to 20. He says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. <clears throat> so let's, just, let's look at the passage this way. I want, to try to, I want to try to plead with you to consider that exercising church discipline is a necessary ingredient for a healthy church. 
So exercising church discipline is a necessary ingredient to a healthy church. So if our church had no one that sinned, right? If we had no sin here, then we'd move right over this passage. But obviously that's not the case. In fact, you can assume that we will sin against each other. I mean, I think you picked that up when he says, if your brother sins against you. You could translate that when your brother sins against you. That there is this assumption we're going to offend one another. There's an assumption that we're going to create an offense and, and, and hurt someone, cause them pain. Now, I, I don't accept this gladly or joyfully. I just think it's to be accepted with a realism. That when Jesus has saved us, you know, when Jesus saved us, when we entered the kingdom of heaven, uh, we weren't taken out of the world, and the world wasn't necessarily taken out of us. I mean, we're, we're still, we still live in this conflict of kingdoms, right? God has designed that our change and our holiness comes in conflict with sin. That you and I are individually battling with sin, and that we live among a people who are battling with sin. I think Paul gives clear word to this in Romans chapter 7. He says this, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God. So you, you see the, the spirit working with him. He delights in God's law. He says, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So simply put, to begin with, the reason the church discipline is a necessary ingredient is because we battle with sin. We're going to offend each other. We're going to struggle in this area. So with that in mind, it's a simple thought, I understand. It's a simple thought. But, but, but I, I would encourage us not to be shocked then when you are offended by someone in the church. Or when someone does sin against you, I would encourage you not to be shocked. Uh, too many parents, you know, the parents that are just beginning their role as parents are often just shocked at the behavior of their children, that they might lie or they might treat a sibling so poorly. And, and those who have been parenting a little bit longer, they're, they're children. I mean, they're sinners. They're going to do this sort of thing. But, but we're just aghast when our children do it. The same thing in the church. You know, are we shocked when people offend us? Are we shocked when people sin against us? I mean, many people take this as a reason to not come to church. Oh, you know, a person was mean to me once, and a person said this about me, or a person said this to me, and it offended me. This is important for you to understand. Again, I, I don't say this as if it's okay. I just say this as, as if it's, it's just reality. And I think, I think we're wise to not be shocked, but be prepared that you will give an offense to people and they will offend you. I, I share this in premarital counseling all the time. I mean, you get in this intimate relationship, you're sharing your lives together and you still hurt each other. Now, God's grace is sufficient for that, but, but we need to be aware that that is in fact a reality that we face. Now, are you aware of that? I mean, are you ready for that? Can you say to yourself, Yes, when a person offends me in this church, I'm not going to react in shock and anger. I mean, just, just prepare yourself that that's going to be the play. It's going to happen. But, but not only do I not want us to be shocked, I don't want us to be deceived over the nature of sin. You know, the nature of sin 
doesn't want to be exposed. So sin, so all of us have been born with a, a natural blindness to our own sin. But we've been given this incredible 2020 vision to see the sins of everybody else. And so that creates this conflict within us. And, and we don't want to be deceived over, over the nature of sin that God has designed that our changing from glory to glory, our becoming holier, is going to be through the insight and the eyesight of other people weighing into our lives. That's how he plans to change us. You may not like it, and I'm sorry about that, but that's how he plans to change it. We've already studied it in Matthew 7. The person with the speck in their eye, they need another person coming along to take the speck out. You understand, a speck, your eyes watering, you can't see it to take it out. Now, the reason the person, in Matthew 7, when he speaks about taking the log out of your eye, he's not saying don't judge. He's just saying the one who looks needs to be clear-sighted. So remove the two-by-four out of your eye. But the point of it is that we need one another to weigh in to our lives over the sins that we see are so destructive. Now, this is where the rub is, because we don't want people in our stuff. We don't want people telling us what they think needs to be changed about us. Our anger rises, our defenses come up, but we need them. That's the point. And the reason you need them is because of the deceptive nature of sin. You cannot see it. But though you can't see it, it is still destructive and disastrous. I mean, the nature of sin in a community like this will seek divisiveness. It will create all kinds of relational conflict and hardship for us. So, so, so we need them. Now, John Owen speaks about the dangerous. See, what I find is the people that are most offended by this idea tend to be those least informed over the danger of sin. In other words, to the degree that you understand the danger of sin, the more you're willing to endure a brother or sister speaking to you about the nature of your life. John Owen said this. John Owen was a great British theologian, 17th century. He writes this. He says, Let no man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. In other words, we have to go after sin in our life. He goes on and he says, but sin is always modest. It's always deceptive in its motions and its proposals. In other words, sin never comes in declaring its desire to destroy you. It comes in kind of modestly, saying, well, it's not that big of a deal. Nobody's going to be hurt. It's consensual. So we have all these rationalizations that help us accept a certain level of sin in our life. He goes on and says, but sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course. It would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head. In other words, we need help. And you have to understand the nature of sin in its destructive capacity to really begin to open up your life for the church to begin to speak to you about these things in your life. And then, so we don't want to be shocked, we don't want to be deceived by sin, but we also don't want to be unengaged with it. So as a church, we're looking at this passage here, and we as a church want to practice discipline at two levels. One is a formative level, and one is a corrective level. The formative level, or the preventative level, 
is what we're doing right now. This is a form of discipline. Discipline, by the way, the word itself has its origins in education and learning. So you're learning about the things of God. You're hearing the preached word. You're going to Bible studies. You're having spiritual conversation with people. These are all good things that help reform your life now. This is kind of like a a self-discipline rather than a church discipline where you hear the word of God and you begin to adjust your life in accordance. You allow the word to be a form over your life. So you begin to conform your life to the word that you hear. Now, if you come and hear and understand and go out and you don't practice it, then the warning is from James that we're kind of deceived. We think we got it, but we don't really have it. But if, if you hearing the word as a means of changing your life in accordance to the word, then discipline happens right now. So after preaching, after preaching on prayer, they come up, someone comes up and says, you know, I've really been convicted over my prayerlessness, and, and I, I need to move forward in that. Would you pray for me to have grace to do that? That's discipline. That's learning. Or, 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 or giving, or, or entering ministry and the cost that you have to embrace. I've never thought about that. I've always been afraid to use my gifts, but I'm going to step out in faith now. So, so the teaching from the pulpit, the Sunday schools, the Wednesday night studies, the reading of the scriptures, the conversation, there ought to be a self-reforming element to that. Now, that's more of the formative discipline. In fact, I remember a time speaking with my father on a, a case a long time ago that we brought to the church for a matter of discipline. And he was aghast that we would bring this person before the church who was, uh, that would not repent over his sin. And he was just overwhelmed by it. And so I, I didn't argue with him. He was coming from a, a religious, uh, quasi-Catholic background at the time. But uh, I said to him, I, I didn't argue with him. I said, here's what I want you to do, Dad. I said, read Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Read 1 Corinthians 5, the whole chapter. And I said, just read it. Just read it before you have any reason that you should agree or disagree with what we're doing. Just just read it. I didn't give any details. I just said this was the event. So this is the type of sin. It was a a dangerous, destructive sin. And um, so he did. He read it. And I I called him back a few days later, and I said, so so what is your take? And he simply said, and he, he he simply said this. He said, I get it. I understand. I mean, he read the word. It makes sense. It just makes sense. Now, he didn't understand all the nuances, and I don't know that he understood all the purposes behind it, but, but you read the word and say, no, we need this. This is what's practiced by the church. So, so the first thing is that exercising church discipline is a necessary ingredient for the health of the church. Now, the second point is that exercising church discipline is God's divine method of moving the, the fallen saint to becoming restored. It, it, it's kind of... Re- bringing the stray back into the fold. And this is where the corrective element of church discipline comes in. So one's formative. This is, this is more corrective. Look with me in 15 uh, and 16 and 17. He says, if your brother sins against you. Now, remember this. Uh, he's speaking to the one who's offended. It's remarkable to me that the one who is offended is the one who's bringing aid to the offender. It's, such, it's so ironic in God's kingdom it works that way. But the wounded becomes the healer. And so he goes there and he says, if your brother sins against you. Now remember, it's a brother, he says. Now, throughout Matthew 18, 
We've seen little ones, we've seen sheep, we've seen brothers. It's all the same group. In other words, this idea of not despising these little ones, this is how you not despise them, is that you, you go to them if your brother sins against you. This isn't a clinical procedure, it's a familial. It, it, it's, not, it's not something that we deal with the sins of the world this way. This is family. The little ones, the brothers, the sheep, they're our family. So discipline is in the context, in the contour of a family. So if your brother sins against you, now this presumes that there is a sin, right? There is something serious, there's some clear, outward violation of God's law. That it's intentional, it's repeated, that he has sinned against you. This isn't clearing your chest on someone who has irritated you. This isn't kind of setting the guy straight or winning the argument. This is an actual sin. In fact, the word go and tell is kind of the language of the court system where you're arguing your case. You're helping him see, no, this is a sin that you have committed and it's working against you. Even though the sin is against me, my motivation is the health of the brother or the sister. We're always going to have disagreements over issues and philosophies of life. We're always going to have differences of opinion on, on music and life and parenting and money and the like. We're always going to have those. And those may cause conflict, but they may not constitute a sin. So those aren't things that we necessarily go to our brother or sister on. And, and you notice, too, that he says, go, it's between him and you alone. This isn't something that you do, this private, this private engagement of someone's sin. It's not something you go to your prayer group about. Hey, can you pray? I'm going to approach Bill about the nature of his sin. Well, we don't do that. It's you go to the brother alone. It's a private, personal matter. And when you go to the person who has sinned against you, this is a private dialogue now, when you go to him or you go to her, we're going in humility. We're really going to clarify and ask questions first. You don't want to assume, you don't want to kind of go in with misinterpretation or misunderstanding and thereby add to the conflict with your own sin of presumption. You don't want to do that. You want to check the facts. You want to check your heart. You want to check your motivation. But what's going to happen is if someone's going to sin against you and you want to make sure it's a it's a clear violation. Jesus doesn't identify the sin for us. He doesn't give us a list of behaviors that you have to confront. It could be a doctrinal error. It could be moral impurity. It could be relational divisiveness. It could be failing to even come to church. It, it, could, be, it could be a number of things. But we just want to approach things cautiously, with humility, and with the desire for the brother. Or the sister. Look at what he says. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Or you have gained your brother. It can be translated won. This idea of winning a brother is, suggests that if you don't go, you'll lose your brother. That he'll be lost. In other words, what's driving this process is not fixing a problem, but it's winning your brother. It's keeping him in a spiritually strong position. That's the intention of it. That if he listens to you, you've won him, you've gained him. The, the fellowship's been restored, the relationship's been renewed. So, so this is hardly, and your experience with church discipline may have been very, very caustic or very judgmental. You don't see that here. You see a driving desire for the benefit of the other. 
Now, in many cases, as you know, this won't be effective, and Jesus has planned for that. He, he has a, a contingency plan. He says, if he doesn't listen, then you go from private to more plural, right? You go to take one or two with you to establish. He says it right in 16. He says, if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, uh, this is coming out of Deuteronomy 19.15, that God has established a law that in the judicial actions of the people of Israel, that people's accusation against another were not heard until there were witnesses establishing the reality of whatever the charge was. And so Jesus is saying that if your brother doesn't listen to you when you confront him, then take one or two others with you. This is of benefit. Now, as long as they aren't your mother and father. But you take objective, perhaps church leaders. Uh, that was funny. <laughs> you want to be objective about who you take. You, you, you want to be able to to take a person, because it's for objectivity and fairness that you're bringing to people. How does it benefit? Well, it benefits the one who has been hurt, that he gets to express the issue for the purposes of reconciliation. It, it helps the one who is the perceived offender to make sure that these independent parties can actually agree, yeah, this is a sin. Yes, this does need to be repented of. And that way it brings some legitimacy and not just the oversensitivity of the accused. It helps the church because it establishes what the real issue is. All four people together saying, yeah, this is the issue that we're having an impasse. This is the issue. It'll help move it forward. But again, the idea is if then the brother listens to you, then you've in fact won your brother and the process stops. Nobody needs to know. You don't go shouting out from the rooftop that we've reconciled. It just ends right there. And the brother's been one. Now, if that step doesn't happen, then that's when you get to verse 17, which is a bit more problematic in our culture. It says, if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Okay, this idea of telling it to the church, this is where it goes from private to plural, now to public. Public, though, in church membership, that's all. It's told to the church. It isn't gossiping. It's not slandering. You're simply explaining just the bare bones of the event and the brother that has failed to repent so that then the church can go in love, seeking his betterment, seeking his repentance, and pleading with him to repent and reconcile. The, the weight of the church now is needed to break through this impasse. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said it this way, the offender needs to hear the whole brotherhood. He needs to hear the church speak with one voice. Brother or sister, we love you. You're failing to repent. Please repent and rejoin the fellowship. Now, if he refuses to do that, if he refuses to do that, then you need to treat him as a tax collector. And what Jesus means by this, it doesn't mean you treat him with disdain. It doesn't mean you treat him with, with contempt and looking down your noses. Remember, we're not to despise the little ones. This is a little one. So we're not called to despise him. What we're called to do, in fact, is, is treat him like a tax collector and a Gentile means, and Jesus was kind to the tax collectors. He was kind to the Gentiles. He preached to them. What, we're called to, what, what I think Jesus is saying here is simply that you're treating them now as if they're not part of the family of God anymore. That They're not invited to the communion table. They're not member... They're not an active voting member in the church. 
They're not practicing the one another's. You're not treating them as if you guys share in a common gospel. He, for a time, we're still assuming he's saved. He's a saint. But he, for a time, is outside. He's acting as if he's outside the promises of God. And so we are to respond to him that way. And so we respond in evangelism. We respond reminding him of the truth of the gospel. And the reason that we're trying to remove him from the membership on a temporary basis is just, it's a, it's a foretaste of judgment. When the church leadership and the church has said, we cannot affirm your salvation anymore, if the man or the woman is a Christian, that should cause his knees to knock. Hey, the closest people to you in your world are saying to you, we are having trouble affirming that you are right with God in this. Now, it takes a lot of pride and it takes a lot of chutzpah to then face these friends and family and say, I'm not going to listen to them. And that's the point, is, is this temporary removal from the church is for the reentry and the restoration of the saint. So, so that's how you kind of stair-step down Matthew, this passage here, in terms of, there's a pr- so if someone offends, then you go to them and ask for clarification with humility, recognizing your own sin in the issue, seeking reconciliation. If it doesn't work, then you take one or two with you. And if that doesn't work, then you bring it before the church. Uh, it, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do, but, but let me remind you of why it's here, why it's so important for our fellowship to walk in this way. And number one, when you practice this church discipline, when it, goes to that, when it goes to that level, we are holding up the holiness of God. You know, We, the church, are the colony of heaven, we are the ones that are imaging the wisdom of God to the world. And so if we don't deal with these relational conflicts well, what are we imaging to the world? So dealing with, this is a hard thing to do, but doing it, I think, upholds God in his holiness. It also maintains the moral purity of the church, that you're eradicating sin, you're dealing with sin, and it maintains a purity in the church. If you were to read 1 Corinthians 5 later today, Paul says, get the man out of the church. A man had been sleeping with uh, what we presume is his stepmother. And Paul says, get him out. I mean, it, it's, bringing, it's bringing wickedness into the church. It's going to destroy the church. It's like, well, we got 90% of the cancer, so I think we're good to go for a while. No, you want to make sure every cell is out of your body. And so that's the idea. It, it kind of retains and restores moral purity of the church. But it's also good for us. When there is a brother who is unrepentant and, and he receives this loving correction of the church, it puts us all, in, and we all take stock of our lives. Where are we walking? What are we doing? How is our life going? Do we need to repent? Do we need to make a change? Uh, but fundamentally, this is, I think, the, the bigger reason that I want to address today is that when we exercise discipline rightly in each other's lives, even at the church level, then I think we display the graciousness of God in the gospel. Let me, let me say that again. I think we display the graciousness of the gospel to the sinner. See, when you hear church discipline, many of us think this is the opposite of salvation, right? Salvation is you bring people into the church. Discipline, you kick people out of the church. It's like salvation's, as one author said, it's like salvation's evil twin sister. It's like it's nasty to us. It just doesn't seem gracious. But I want to show that, 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 no, I think it's the, one of the highest forms of grace 
to move with discipline towards one another. And let me explain that. If you think about the whole storyline of the Bible, it's discipline. It's what I'm speaking about, right? You have, you have God creating the man and the woman in the garden. It's his kingdom. They're his people. They're living under his word. It's really a picture of the church, isn't it? And, and there he is. God has created all these things. God has created us for his glory and for our joy. So God has, God has been so gracious to draw us to enjoy his person, his glory, his joy. So we see right in the beginning of the scriptures that they turn against God. They move away from God. They, they want to choose a path of their own making. They don't want to submit to God. And so what does God do to their sin? He removes them from the garden. He removes them from himself. He excommunes with them. So he moves them out, but he moves towards them. He, he begins this divine initiative of restoring the fallen. And he does it right in the beginning of Genesis when he says that the woman will have a seed and the seed will crush the head of the serpent. And then you begin reading through the Old Testament. You see the the, the, uh, promise given to Abraham, the promise then articulated in more detail to David about one that will come that will do this final restoration. You have the prophets speaking about it. Of course, you just march through the, the line of God's redemptive history and then Jesus Christ comes and what is it? It comes in the flesh. It comes like us. He lives under the law to redeem those under the law. He, he, he bears our sins on the cross in our stead, just as we sang about, to restore us. That the very judgment of God on the cross is the judgment that we're giving in just a small taste to the unrepentant sinner. And then Jesus dies for our sins. You know, he was a son made a sinner to take sinners and make them sons. And then, of course, we're restored to God. And then, of course, as you march through the rest of Revelation, you find that the, that the final restoration, the final return of us fallen people will be on that last day. You know, when, when all things will be, earth is groaning, we're groaning for redemption. But, but you see the whole redemptive history of God is about restoring the fallen. That's what church discipline is about. It, it, it's about taking people who are part of the fold they're walking in an unrepentant, in a, in, a, in a destructive manner, and we're going to them. We're initiating the search and rescue to draw the straying sheep back in. We're just walking out what God did. And that's why it's seen so beautifully. It, while it may not have been practiced perfectly in your experience, this is the intent, this is what we're going for, to restore the fallen saint. Is that not a beautiful picture? The whole Bible is, if you will, Church discipline, bringing people back. Now, I, I recognize, and you have these few verses here, there's a lot I'm not saying about it. You know, there's all kinds of struggles and pitfalls that you have do, doing this. You have the risk of being misinterpreted. You have the risk of, of really fracturing a relationship even more. You might be called judgmental. You might be called intolerant. There's all kinds of pitfalls when you go to a person to say, hey, Brother, I, I think you've sinned against me in this way. I, I want to talk to you about it. That's very frightening. Most of us will never do it. More and more people have their own box of bitterness over previous grievances that they've never confronted a person about. And the box will grow as you grow, and it gets bigger and uglier and nastier, becomes heavier to pull around, it begins to pick up a very bad odor, and you just live with it because we don't go and fix things and, and, and try to reconcile. 
So I recognize there's all kinds of pitfalls there. And so that's why I'm so thankful for 18, 19, and 20. Because Jesus gives us three promises here to encourage a very faint-hearted people to do what he's instructing us to do. So remember, church, exercising church discipline is a necessary ingredient to a healthy church. Exercising church discipline is God's divine method of restoring the fallen. But then exercising church discipline is, is supported by these three promises. Look with me in 18, 19, and 20. He says this, he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, when Jesus says, truly I say to you, it's kind of an attention grabber. He's calling for us to believe this. He's asking you, have faith in what I'm saying. Believe it. it may, you may be terrified to do this, but believe it. He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in uh, whatever, you bind on heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Now, Jesus is not saying here that while we were given the keys, Peter was given the keys in chapter 16, all the disciples are given the keys here. Uh, he's not saying that earth makes a decision and now heaven's bound by it. There is nowhere in Scripture that we're given that kind of authority. This is kind of a delegated authority. We are actually moving in space and time, carrying out what God's already decided. In other words, the tense of these verbs, or whatever you bind on earth, has already been bound in heaven, is how you would translate this. In other words, God sees the sinning brother who's unrepentant. He has seen the brother walk in consistent, unrepentant sin. And so the church now moves, carrying out God's call to move him outside the fellowship. So whatever we bind on earth, will be bound in heaven. He's saying that we are walking out in space and time, God's directive. We have the ratification, we have the approval of God to do this in mercy and grace because God's already weighed in on it. We're just now walking it out as his mouthpiece. Charles Spurgeon said it more eloquently, and here's what he said about this. He said, Our Lord has inaugurated the church by handing its keys to Peter as representing the whole brotherhood. And now he distinctly recognizes those keys as being in the hands of the whole church. Those who bind are all the disciples, or the whole of the church, which have been called in to make peace between the two brothers. Each church has the keys of its own door. When those keys are rightly turned by the assembly below, the act is ratified above. That which they bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. If by God's grace erring brethren repent, and are freed from the censure of the assembly, the Lord on high sanctions the deed according to his word. A deep solemnity surrounds the binding and loosing of true Christian assemblies. It is no light thing to act as a church, and no little thing to be put forth from it, or to be restored again to its fellowship. So that's the first promise, that we're acting in concert with God's plan. But the second promise, and I want you to look with me, in 19, he says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, I am a classic example of taking a passage out of context. This, for me, was a great passage to take, and if I can get enough people to pray with me over an issue, then the probability of God answering it is going to increase. And so you put things on prayer chains and tell 10 friends to pray about this. And if I can get 100, I'm more assured than if I only get 10. And I want you to see this in context. If two of you agree, it's the offender and the offended. 
It's not just saying anything before God. The offender and the offender, if you can agree on a path of reconciliation and you ask the Father to bring healing to the relationship, it will happen. God will move. My Father in heaven will answer it. That the offender and the offended come together. Say, we want God more glorified than I want to be proven right. And I want you honored in this, God. And let's both right now, the offender and the offended, praying together, God, help us reconcile this issue. Then our Father in heaven will do it. And Jesus assures us of that. So it's to move in confidence, to lay down our rights for the greater purpose of reconciliation between one another. So that's a promise to us, that we're, we're doing the work of God at the same time. He's going to answer us when we seek to reconcile. Look with me at the next verse in 20. He gives a third promise. He says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Again, this used to be argued for have small assemblies. Don't have one, don't have four. He might not be there. It's not what he's saying. He's saying where two or three are gathered. This is the assembly as they exercise discipline for the benefit of the unrepentant. Jesus is assuring us of his, pro- of his presence there. Only one other place in Matthew 28, when you're going out to the world, Jesus says, there I am with you. And here, there I am among you. The idea is that when we walk in obedience to God's word, bringing about a God-centered, sinner-focused, and graciously administered discipline, that Jesus is there in a unique way, furthering and advancing the reconciliation of his church. So here you see that discipline is really a necessary ingredient. It's the way that God has chosen to give to us to restore the fallen back to himself. And it's given to us with the promises of Jesus Christ, these three promises. So what do we do with this? It's still an intimidating issue. I realize that. We live in a tolerant culture. And to do this sort of thing, for me to go up to you and say, brother, sister, are you to say to me, I mean, it's a very, very challenging thing. And it's seen as intolerant. But let me remind you, tolerance, by the way, is not a bad thing. I mean, tolerance, we, we, some of us want to just say tolerance is, is evil and wicked. No, tolerance is nice. To be tolerant of your neighbor's behavior and them to be tolerant of you makes for a decent neighborly relationship. So tolerance in and of itself can be fine. Where tolerance is a problem is when we're, tolering, when we're tolerating dangerous things. So for the parent to tolerate a child playing with knives, that's not a wise thing. It's, we wouldn't look at that form of tolerance as a good thing. And if you understand the destructive nature of sin to the health of this body, then you would understand tolerating sin is not a virtue, it's a vice. I mean, it, it is destructive. When, the, when what we tolerate has destructive capacity, we don't want to tolerate it. We want to deal with it. And it's going to take us understanding the nature of sin in its destructive capacity for us to want to move. And it also, so you want to consider the destructive nature of sin, but also consider your brother. Consider the one who is acting in an unrepentant manner, who is coming against the assembly seeking his reconciling good. I mean, think about the brother. We have to not think about the hurt that we've endured from the brother, we have to first think about the brother. Now, this takes gospel power. This takes your understanding of Jesus doing this for you. You, are, you become the wounded healer. You're bleeding from the wound, and yet you're administering the medicine 
and the aid that this brother or sister needs. It's a picture of the gospel. I mean, it just displays it. It's what Jesus did for us. So folks, we may be in great shape right now in the relationships, and I thank God for that. But I would ask you, especially as we turn to this time of just quiet reflection for a minute, and as you go about your day, think through the nature of your relationships. And think about what state they're in. Are you harboring bitterness and frustration? Because remember, next week now, the question's going to come, following 18.15 to 20, here's what the question's going to be. Well, if he repents and then he sins again, what do I do? And then he, he sins again and repents, what do I do? And Jesus is going to address that. And he's going to give the parable between the king and these two servants. So let's just take a minute now and quietly consider these things. And uh, it may lead you to conviction. It may lead you to encouragement. But just give thanks to God for his word and how you might walk it out in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then Levy's going to close us in prayer.